Welcome to Washington District 19 State Representatives Candidates Forum. We'll hear from the candidates as they answer questions on topics including salmon restoration, state policy on drug addiction, support for small businesses, and COVID-19 response. We join the forum now as moderator Stephanie Lights introduces the candidates and lays out ground rules. Good evening. Welcome to our District 19 Legislative Candidate Debate sponsored by the Waukiacom County Republican Party and the Waukiacom County Democratic Party, working together for the good of the county and all the rural folks everywhere. This event is also on the Waukiacom R&D YouTube channel. Welcome to all you YouTubers and thank you for joining us. I'm Stephanie Light and I am going to be your moderator for tonight's debate. Our panelists tonight are Jim Walsh, incumbent for position one, Republican Party. Mariana Everson, challenger for position, for position one, Democratic Party. Brian Blake, incumbent, position two, Democratic Party. Joel McIntyre, challenger for position two, and Republican Party. You guys ready? Here are the rules. All of the questions were submitted ahead of time and in response to a request that went out in the Eagle and online. There will be no questions taken from the audience. I will ask a question, then each candidate will have two minutes to respond to that question. With 15 seconds remaining, our timer will state 15 seconds. At the end of the two minutes, our timer will state time's up and then I will allow the candidate to finish their thought. The first candidate for each position to respond to a question will have an additional 30 second rebuttal time, but before, before moving on to the next question. If a candidate has time remaining in his two minutes, he or she may continue speaking on a previous topic. There will be no banking of time for later. I will rotate the order in which all of you respond to the questions. Let's get started. Our first question, um, there will be, the, for our first two questions, there will not be a 30 second rebuttal. All right, we're gonna start with you, Jim. Would you please take two minutes and tell us all about yourself and why you are running? Sure, Stephanie, thanks. Uh, uh, I'm Jim Walsh, I'm uh, the incumbent uh, state representative in position one from the 19th district. I was elected uh, first four years ago uh, in 2016 and then re-elected in 2018. So I'm seeking my third term in the state legislature. Uh, I've run and run again and, and really legislated from a, a simple position uh, that the 19th district needs and deserves strong, clear voice. And in Olympia, uh, and uh, an aggressive approach to legislation and, and public policy that aggressively defends the uh, interests of this part of the state. And uh, those interests, I think, are primarily uh, two, but, but uh, there are other uh, elements too. And those two uh, issues, uh, general issues, are uh, jobs and economic development in the private sector 
And uh, that means family wage jobs and uh, the traditional kind of uh, uh, good pay jobs that the area was known for and were signature uh, qualities of living here for decades. And the other is uh, a fair shake for our schools. Um, most of the school districts, even the larger ones in this uh, area, are, uh, are still considered smaller school districts. And they've been on the short end of a lot of uh, school policy and school funding issues in the last few decades. And I've tried to help uh, fix that, fix that uh, playing field. And then last, more generally, I've uh, been a strong voice protecting fundamental constitutional rights, including the rights to privacy, to property, and to uh, keep and bear arms. So uh, I'm Jim Walsh, and I'm here to talk policy and get your vote in the November 3rd election. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Um, and his challenger, Mariana, will you go? I'd love to. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Mariana Everson. I grew up right here in LD19 in Grace Harbor. Um, uh, I graduated from Montesano High School, and I'm a product of working class timber workers. I'm fulfilled in my career as a nurse, uh, serving people who need us the most in the mental health facility. Uh, I'm a wife of veteran, uh, mother of six beautiful children, and I'm not running for office for my own sake. Uh, I wouldn't be putting in all this time and effort if I didn't know down to my bones that the direction our district is moving is destructive to our health and safety for everyone. Working people here deserve a dignified life with living wages, affordable housing, a fully funded public school system and healthcare that fits our needs, not the profits of corporations. I know we need these things because like most of you, I've, I've gone without them. They're not pie in the sky aspirations. Uh, they're the minimum of wor working people should expect in the wealthiest country in the history of the world because we're human beings and alive at a time of great abundance. Abundance that never seems to trickle down. Billion dollar corporations have gamed the systems for the last 40 years. They use every trick in the book to avoid paying taxes, avoid paying living wages and benefits and squeeze every drop of profit out of our lives. And the politicians who take their money push policies to benefit their bottom lines, not the well-being of working families. These paid politicians use divide and conquer strategy to keep us distracted and afraid of each other. They keep us fighting amongst ourselves. So we're distracted from the fact that 19 corporations paid no taxes at all last year. And during this COVID-19 health and financial crisis, billionaires have become at least $900 billion richer while working families like us are dealing with unemployment and facing eviction. During this uh, worst health and financial crisis any of us have ever faced, now's not the time for division and fear. Now's the time to come together, take care of each other, fight for things that we all know, make life better for people, healthcare for all, good jobs for all, education, childcare for all, and homes for all of us. Thanks. Thank you. All right, next is Brian Blake. Yeah, thank you for the invitation tonight. Um, I'm, uh, my family came here to the other side of the river at Beaver Dam, Oregon in 1871, and we uh, moved on to Aberdeen in 1888 and uh, uh, married uh, three boys, eight grandchildren, and uh, I've been in the legislature since the uh, 2003 session, and uh, I've become the chair of the uh, 
Rural Development, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee. And I truly believe that that's a critical uh, role for in the legislature to protect the economy of Southwest Washington and the state. I was on a call today dealing with, uh, you know, Eastern Washington issues and agricultural issues and, and transportation issues. And I, I think in that role, I have a lot of power and I can uh, uh, bring uh, issues forward that are important to the district and, and work, continue working to uh, uh, keep our timber economy strong. And uh, I'm in a heck of a battle over uh, restoring our fishing economy on the coast and in the river. Um, there's uh, uh, bipartisan forces aligned against us in, in uh, our fishing economy, and I, I'm fighting that fight and building coalitions to uh, uh, restore those fisheries. My role in the legislature is, uh, you know, working across the aisle. I, I'm noted for uh, running my committee in a fair, bipartisan fashion. The minority always has a voice in my committee, and uh, and uh, I'm known for moving. Uh, Republican bills out of committee and Democratic bills. Good policy is good policy, and it shouldn't be partisan. Thank you. Thank you. And um, our last candidate is Joel McIntyre. You were going to say last but not least, I know. <laughs> Just the last in the order of four, right? <laughs> sure. Hey, so uh, I'm Joel McIntyre, longtime resident of uh, Southwest Washington, Kath Lamett, uh, raised there. I live there today. Um, I uh, worked in education for years and uh, I currently am a student counselor at Western Governors University and uh, I've been in the Marines uh, and still am coming up on about 10 years and I, I enjoy that. Um, ballots are coming out right now and uh, people are making their choices. Um, in our district as in, in our nation we have two major political parties. We have two candidates per position tonight um, speaking and we have two directions we can go. Um, we can go uh, with a direction that has proven to be failed, that has brought states that were once prosperous down to their knees and taken prosperous countries down into utter poverty. Or we can take a position in a direction that leads to choices of free people, free markets and low taxes and business friendly environments that allow businesses to thrive and bring good wage jobs uh, before us. There are two directions before us tonight. My opponent, Brian Blake, and uh, Mariana Everson represent a direction that I am not in favor of, one of raising taxes, one of higher regulations and, and uh, allowing special interests from, from uh, outside the district to influence us. Um, my, my opponent um, has received overwhelming support uh, from Seattle uh, liberals on his side of the aisle, uh, the likes of which he has not seen similar uh, support for people in the district. He receives much, much more support from outside the district than in. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a sign that there's a, there are forces out there pushing us in a direction that we just simply don't want to go. Uh, people of the 19th district know the direction they want to go, and it's not the direction Seattle wants to push us. Thanks, Joel. All right, our next question. Um, if elected, what is one big goal you'd like to accomplish and how will you make sure it gets implemented? Um, and in addition, how will it help the residents of District 19? And I'm gonna ask Brian to start with this one. There we go, unmuted. 
one big goal, I think, is to, to uh, continue to see that our hatcheries are, are fully funded and, and achieve full production in our hatchery system. We, uh, it's been a battle. Uh, in the last budget cycle, I was able to get fish and wildlife fully funded, and, uh, and it's projected we can uh, uh, increase production at our hatcheries in the district. The, uh, uh, there's still some barriers to that and, and still some folks fighting that, uh, wild fish folks. And, and I believe we can run our hatcheries at full throttle and still restore wild fish runs. And, and so it, it, it's not just about the hatcheries, it's about uh, restoring habitat, access to habitat, uh, stream crossings, uh, coverts. There was a covert case and the Supreme Court has ruled uh, uh, in uh, much of the state we've got to fix these uh, stream crossings, but uh, it doesn't apply to Wakayakum County. So it'll be my job to go into that budget and, and pull those resources down so I can help my partners at the county level and city level to uh, make these investments in uh, salmon habitat. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, Joel, will you go next? What is your one big goal? Uh, I've got several goals, but one that I think would be very appropriate and have long-lasting impact on the people of the 19th would be to bring some accountability to the Department of Ecology. If you're not familiar, um, in our Washington state government, we have uh, departments, um, not elected, appointed, hired bureaucracies, if you will, um, with, a, uh, with a function, a goal that they're supposed to provide some kind of good or service for the people of Washington State. The Department of Ecology originally was chartered to counsel with uh, local governments and help inform us on the good science, bring good science to, to people who otherwise don't have their heads in that, in that science realm. You know, let us know about what's going on in the world of ecology. And now the Department of Ecology has not become so much of a, a counselor and a, um, a friend in, um, in small governments trying to build up their infrastructure and their economies. It's become a foe. It's become an opponent. It's become something to be feared. Uh, what I'd really like to see is more accountability uh, brought to uh, the Department of Ecology in which the legislature um, has more oversight, has uh, more, more of a... Uh, I guess more control over how the Department of Ecology is run and how their regulations are, are managed. Because uh, as it is now, um, you'll hear it from my opponent time and time again, he'll say, I can't do anything. It's, it's the department, it's the bureaucrats, my hands are tied. I don't wanna be in that position. I don't want to just keep saying every single two years, as my opponent does, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna work really hard to bring fit hatcheries back or I'm gonna work hard to help the forestry industry. And we continue to get promises every two years, but nothing seems to get done. I really, really think that helping the Department of Ecology is a fix that would be long lasting for our, our economy. Thank you, Joel. All right, uh, next is Jim. One big goal and how it affects our district. Well, my big goal, uh, it draws a little bit on, on both what uh, Ryan and Joel brought up. Uh, my goal is going to be to help the Northwest Innovations Work methanol plant in Kalama, which is just outside the district, but, but close by, get through the SEPA, the State Environmental Protection Act uh, regulatory permitting review process. Um, 
That project uh, is is really uh, gone through some kangaroo court uh, experiences trying to get its permits uh, to get built and up and running. And uh, this touches on what Joel brought up at the Department of Ecology, which is the kangaroo court that that project is trying to get through. They're now in the middle of a second supplemental environmental impact statement process, uh, unprecedented in the regulatory world, uh, and uh, one that uh, we're watching and trying to make sure uh, stays within the proper lines of the law. Uh, this project will do more than just bring uh, thousands of construction jobs and hundreds of operational jobs to our area. It'll also show that business can be done and that big important development projects uh, can happen in Southwest Washington. It'll show that we're open for business in short. And that's an important message that we need to show the, the nation and the world. And uh, it'll allow us to restore some of the economy that's been so great in this part of Washington and has been suffering in recent years. So, uh, so that's a big one. And, and the, some of the environmental mitigation monies and efforts available from that project will help fund hatcheries. So uh, it, it'll be a good thing on a, on a number of fronts. And I'd like to see that uh, get through that permitting process in the next two years. All right, thank you, Jim. Okay, Mariana. Yeah, um, as a nurse, I definitely am going to talk about healthcare again. My dad worked his entire life as a millwright to provide a good life for my brothers and I. And he taught me so much about um, hard work, what that really means and what that can do for you. Um, he didn't deserve to die with nothing to show for that hard work that he had done his whole life. Uh, only thing he had left was a broken down truck in his yard. And just because he got sick, because he got cancer, he died with absolutely nothing. Um, no one deserves that. And um, the reason that that happened is because we have a immoral for-profit health insurance industry that profits off of our sickness rather than providing for the needs that we have as human beings. Um, we can have a not-for-profit healthcare system that covers everyone for all the treatment needs, the medications that they need, uh, so that no one goes without and no one dies bankrupt like my dad did. Everyone can have what they need to survive in a pandemic and thrive, get through it. We don't have what every other developed country has because uh, politicians who take insurance companies' money uh, stand in the way. They, um, our broken campaign finance system allows paid politicians like Jim to take hordes of cash from insurance companies and prescription drug companies in order to tell us what we can't have and and uh, convince us that we can't afford it. Well, the, pro the thing is we can't afford it. We can save $9 billion a year in the state of Washington, uh, in, only in Washington, across the country even more, by taking the middleman out, the insurance companies. Okay, thank you. Um, our next question. 
uh, what have you done or what would you do to support small business in District 19 um, that is struggling to recover from COVID-19? So the first person to answer this question is going to be Joel. And then after Joel, um, we'll have Brian. And then Joel will have a 30-second opportunity for a rebuttal. All right. So Joel, will you go ahead and start? Yeah, it, it's clear if we want small businesses to be successful and, and start up here, um, we need to maintain an environment that's going to be a, uh, a hospitable place for small businesses to be able to thrive. And we have been. Washington State's actually been very good. We've had small businesses that have started in people's garages that have taken over the world, that hire tens of thousands of people and have made just scores and scores of millionaires and billionaires and have brought income to, to place whole schools and, and communities have been made off of a good idea. And where did the good idea start? It didn't start in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It didn't start in downtown Chicago. It started here in Washington state. We've had so many of these, uh, of these opportunities, but it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's going to stop as long as we keep making, uh, an environment in which businesses are, are seen to be the enemy, that, they're, that if they're successful, we're just going to tax them and take from them. If you take last year, for example, uh, we had advisory notes. These are votes that people vote on to see, you know, where do they stand on an issue? And you can measure it against, uh, against your, your public servants. We think, I think we had 12 advisory notes, many of them about tax increases. Um, my opponent, Brian, was only with the district on two of them. So on 10 of them, he was wrong. And he says, well, he's, you know, he's for, he's for the will of uh, the people of this district. Well, how can that be if every time uh, a tax wants to be increased, uh, my opponent seems to try a vote for it when the, and the people of the district don't want to see these increases. And so um, I think that keeping taxes low and keeping us, uh, keeping us um, competitive is going to be the best mix for helping small businesses get forward anytime. Doesn't matter if we're coming out of a pandemic or not. Thank you, Joel. Brian, what are you going to do to support small businesses in our district um, and helping I think them? The first thing them? we've, I think the first thing we've got to do is is get them back open, and uh, get the economy restarted. But beyond that, uh, uh, we have got to be diligent in. Uh, overseeing some of these uh, regulatory um, approaches. Uh, I think we all want clean air and clean water and, and uh, safety. Um, but, you know, I'm hearing a lot from uh, the childcare industry that uh, 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 the newest regulations are burdening them in a way that uh, many of them are going to drop out of business. We're going to have to go back and, and push back on those kind of regulations. And, uh, um, you know, my opponent brought up the advisory votes and I'm, you know, I'm looking at the, uh, the pamphlet here. One of the votes that uh, happened last year was on uh, uh, taxing uh, paper sacks and plastic sacks. And uh, I was a heck no on that bill from the beginning and uh, uh, was frankly shocked at the bipartisan vote to, uh, uh, require stores to charge you, I think it was eight or 10 cents a bag at the store. And, and I just don't understand why uh, a bill to require a store 
to set the price of what they would charge you for a bag. It makes no sense to me. I voted no um, and was shocked at the bipartisan vote for that bill. Thank you. Yeah, I get a 30 second rebuttal. Thanks, Is that Brian. Um, you do, Joel, 30 seconds if you'd like it. Yes, uh, so my opponent says that uh, we need to open back up the state. Well, you're a little too little too late, Brian. 3,000 businesses have closed their doors never to open again. And while our governor was deciding winners and losers and saying which businesses had to close and which didn't, I was making a strong stance to say these businesses should remain open in the heat, in the very doldrums of the pandemic. And I was on your social media and what were you doing? You were carving wooden ducks and showing them off of, of uh, your wooden duck collection. So you're too late. Okay, uh, the same question is now gonna go to Jim and Mariana. Um, will you start for us, Mariana? What would you um, have done or what would you do to support small businesses um, right. during this COVID-19? Small businesses deserve relief. Um, what, what I would do is uh, allow them to have that relief by cutting their taxes by uh, taxing people who can afford it, like Walmart, who pays very little in taxes anywhere, pays their employees so, so low that they need uh, social services that we all pay for, like um, TAN, uh, not TANF, but um, food stamps, uh, supplements for their rent with Section 8, uh, huge multinational corporations like Walmart, uh, make their money off of our tax dollars and they deserve to pay more in taxes and they deserve to, and the workers that work for them deserve to make more money so they don't have to rely on those social services that uh, we all pay for. Uh, I would give our small business um, owners a, a tax break so they can get back into their business because they have closed or they have um, had a, a massive amount of, of, um, change in their profit margin. They deserve, they work very hard and they deserve to have um, the relief that they need to prosper in their business. Thanks. Jim, will you now respond to that question? Sure. Uh, I've already done it. Uh, my colleague Jesse Young and I put forward a package of uh, bill proposals. There aren't bills yet because we're not at a place where we can drop them, but we've drafted the, the bills to uh, it's a package of three different tax reform bills and regulatory reform bills. The crux of it is to waive the business and occupation tax, the B&O tax, on all businesses in Washington for 12 months. And uh, it's, we've shown uh, that by doing that as a jumpstart to uh, economic recovery in the midst of the governor's uh, overreach in response to the COVID outbreak, it's the single best thing we can do to get businesses back up and running fastest. And we won't even lose that much tax revenue to the state treasury because the resulting increase in sales taxes at the state level will more than make up for the shortfall created by waiving the B&O tax. It's called tax leveraging, where you drop one tax and you more than make up for the difference in the increase of another tax because of resulting economic activity. So we, uh, Jesse and I have been working on this for months and we have the bills ready to go as soon as we get into the pre-file uh, timeframe for the upcoming session. Uh, I've spoken with small business owners all around the district from, from Aberdeen to 
to Longview, to, uh, to Calf Lamont, right downtown. And if you talk to small business owners, they will tell you that that B&O tax is the biggest burden that they face uh, in terms of the tax structure in the, in the state. And if we could waive it for 12 months, 15 seconds, this is quickest and they can rehire people fastest. So that's what I'll do uh, in the next few weeks. Mariana, if you would like 30 seconds, you can have that. Yeah, uh, definitely need to give uh, small businesses a tax break, but we don't need to be uh, pushing that burden onto their customers and, and the rest of us because sales tax is a poor tax. It is a tax on, uh, it just pushes all the tax burden back out on the working class. And so uh, I would replace those taxes with a tax on wealth because we have the, uh, you know, richest man in the world lives in our state. There's uh, 13 bi other billionaires in our state and they can pay their fair share. Thank you. Um, okay, our next question. If the sexual health education bill uh, becomes a law, what curriculum would you support to implement and why? Please give specific details about the curriculum. Um, and this time, it looks like we are gonna start with Brian. The curriculum, as you, you saw in the, the uh, Daily News article, um, uh, the uh, uh, Kelso School District, whether the bill passes or not, nothing's going to change. They're already teaching their curriculum, and uh, and uh, it's not a problem. So, but beyond that, I, I think that uh, uh, districts can choose their own curriculum, and I have great confidence in the school boards around this district that, that they will choose uh, appropriate, age appropriate curriculum that meets the needs of their community uh, when this bill becomes law. So uh, I think, you know, at the younger ages, uh, kindergarten, um, it's very innocuous teaching them how plants grow and animals grow and, and teaching them uh, to tell a responsible adult if somebody is touching them wrong. And uh, we have a problem with child molestation in this state and in this nation, and we need to start arresting and prosecuting child molesters that are hurting our children. So that's the kind of curriculum that I'm looking for. Okay, and Joel, what are your thoughts on that question? Yeah, I don't want to tell you how to run your life. I don't, I'm, I don't feel like I have the, the wisdom to be able to give the perfect solution for everybody. I believe in parental control. I believe in local control. I believe in local school boards to be able to decide these things at the, at the most local and personal level possible for the, the welfare of our kids. Having a large overarching mandate from the state is not any way to, to properly uh, bring sexual, sexual education to our students. And, and th this idea that this has something to do with catching child molesters. Uh, where in this bill does it strengthen our uh, our sex offender registry or um, or strengthen our police force to be able to and our detectives to be able to get to the bottom of it? It doesn't do anything about that. It's not about uh, child predation or, or molestation. This is about social engineering. This is something the left does very well. They know if they want to get something done in 20 years, they have to start with the the, the young generation and teach them. Uh, what, they, what they want them to know. 
And so this is about, uh, this is about normalizing the, uh, the agenda of the LGBTQ uh, uh, agenda. This is absolutely clear. And because you can read the curriculum, you can see it. it has nothing to do with preventing child molestation. This is all about indoctrinating uh, sexual practices as young as possible, starting at the kindergarten level. It has been, and it's going to be overwhelmingly rejected um, on the ballot. I'm absolutely sure of it. And I know that Brian, my opponent, and Dean have done their huddle and said, well, all right, we got to double down on this. We can't back off. I won't back off if you don't back off. But it's, guys, this is a losing proposition issue. Allow, allow, uh, allow school districts and parents and individuals to have this choice instead of making them opt out and then saying, well, you have to check with us if your curriculum is good. We'll tell you if it's all right. You can choose the curriculum, but we'll, you can choose from our selection. It's not a good way to go. Thanks, Joel. Uh, Brian, you can have a 30-second rebuttal if you'd like. Absolutely. You cannot register a sex offender if you haven't first arrested them and put them in jail. You've got to prosecute these people. The, uh, the uh, um, folks, for far too long, folks say, well, we'll just keep it in the family. We don't want Uncle Johnny to go to prison. It's to be embarrassing. We have got to protect our children. We've got to pass this law, arrest these people. And, and put them in prison and put them oh, on that oh. registry. Thank you. Okay, Jim, uh, will you please answer this question? Sure. Uh, first off, vote rejected on referendum 90 on your ballot uh, due November 3rd. Uh, I'm proud to have been one of the legislative co-sponsors to get that referendum on the ballot so that the people of Washington can vote rejected. Um, there is at current only one curriculum that completely matches the requirements of that legislation and that's the so-called three r's curriculum now there are other sexual curriculum sex ed curriculums that could uh, eventually meet the requirements of the bill but at current there's only the one um and uh it's true that, and by the way, this three R's curriculum, which you can look up at three R's.org, uh, it's publicly available for review. Uh, it has information and content in that curriculum that most people I've spoken with in this district find objectionable. Um, the, uh, the real problem I have with the underlying legislation and the reason I'm so adamantly an advocate for rejecting referendum 90 is that it moves control over the curriculum from the elected school boards to the bureaucrats at the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction. And while local school boards can develop their own material or adopt uh, material somebody else developed as their uh, course material, they still have to get that decision approved of by OSPI. So there is definitely a, a shift of authority and final decision-making power away from the local elected school board to the bureaucrats at the, the state superintendent's office. And that's the real reason that I object to the underlying legislation. Um, there's little in the underlying legislation or the curriculum currently approved by the bill that helps law enforcement. There, there really isn't. That's not the focus of anything in the, in the curriculum. Um, we all want to enforce the law. We all want to prosecute sex offenders and, and put them in jail and put them on the list. 
But this bill you, and the curriculum doesn't help do that. All right. Um, Mariana, would you like me to repeat the question? It's been a while. No, it's okay. I got okay. it. So um, I have a kindergartner and he will learn um, the life, the life uh, of a flower or uh, how a dog grows. And my teenagers will learn uh, again, uh, how to protect themselves from sexually transmitted diseases, what consent is, which is very important uh, to prevent sexual assault. And um, I, I believe in all of that. Uh, and and uh, parents can opt out if they feel that that is too much information for their kids. They can look at the curriculum, they can read it themselves, inform themselves and know what their kids are go, go, are up against it's all it's all about choice but what i really want to say is that i reject your uh statement joel that this is an lgbtq agenda this is not people of our uh community who identify as lgbtq have just as much right to the respect and dignity as anyone else. And I, I uh, am outraged that you would over and over and over again say that somebody in the LGBTQ has an agenda that they want to uh, afford to the rest of the community. We're not, we're not doing that, sir. And uh, I think it's outrageous that you would even say that. I'm tired of hearing it. Um, Jim, you can have 30 seconds if you would like. No, there's nothing of substance in what Mariana said that needs rebuttal. Okay, so we're going to move on to our next question. And um, Mariana, it will be your, um, I want to make sure, first of all, is it Mariana or Mariana? We want to pronounce it right. That's so important. Mariana Everson. Right, Everson. Okay, so um, Mariana, I want you to start this next question. Um, and the question is, what factors influence homelessness in the 19th district and what solutions would you propose to mitigate those factors? Sure. Um, housing is healthcare. If you don't have uh, safety, security, and warmth, uh, which is the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you cannot uh, self-actuate to uh, a higher level of the, of the pyramid. Uh, what we have is a poverty issue. We do not have enough good paying jobs and the, uh, for the housing that we have is more expensive than ever. Uh, someone who is on disability, social security, any kind of fixed income cannot afford a place to live in our district. And that is ridiculous. It, uh, the average rent in the Kelso Longview area is $846 and a social security check is 755 a month. We need more affordable housing because the rents are too high. We need good paying high wage jobs uh, for people who, who can work so that they can make it in this, in this world. It's, it, um, it is not right that, uh, People are allowed to charge whatever they want for rent and leave people out on the sidewalk. It's not okay. And uh, I will work very hard to make sure that we uh, create great paying jobs 
uh, building affordable housing so that everyone can have a safe and warm home. Um, and Jim, um, you're up next. Um, would you like me to repeat the question? No, I still got it, Stephanie. Um, homelessness is not one issue. Homelessness is a bunch of different issues combined together and kind of described under one uh, umbrella uh, of that term. Uh, I don't think we have a, a homelessness crisis per se. What we have primarily is an addiction problem. And uh, to a lesser degree, we have a mental health uh, problem. And you know what we have done in the past, well, 25 years or so, but particularly in the last eight to 10 years, is we've really uh, badly uh, in statute and in practice enabled addiction. And we've, I would even say normalized addiction with uh, really misbegotten public health programs that give addicts the tools to kill themselves, literally the syringes to do it. Uh, it's like handing an alcoholic uh, a handle of vodka. Would you do that? Uh, if you cared about the person, you wouldn't do that. But we hand addicts the hardware uh, of their slow and awful suicide. And we've got to stop doing that. We need to treat addicts with compassion and, and even love, but tough love. And we have to really give them the the kick in the pants they often need to get off the junk. And uh, uh, the, the mental health piece of it, which is a smaller piece, but still critical, is uh, a little harder to get at a good solution. But I think we're heading the right direction in this state. Uh, in that we're moving away from centralized mental health care facilities to smaller community-based ones, which I think are, are the right way to go. And in time, uh, will help alleviate that mental health uh, crisis. Um, Mariana, you can have a 30 second rebuttal if you'd like. This is the exact uh, field that I work in, mental health and uh, drug addiction. Many of the people that I serve in, in uh, at Mark Reed Hospital um, are addicted and or mentally ill and homeless. And the only way that they have a sustained way to stay clean and stay on their meds for their mental health is if they have a home. And luckily with um, some of the things that were passed last time, we have been able to put almost everyone into a, a warm, secure home and have not seen it the recidivism um, that we once did. Okay, thank you. Right, we're going to move um, move on. And Joel, it is now your turn to answer this question: What factors influence homelessness in our district? Well, it, it is a very hard uh, hard question. Uh, one thing that hasn't been talked about that I, I think needs to be also addressed is the fact that these individuals are not static; they're not in one position or place. These are individuals that that move from community to community. They could, they can walk, they can uh, be bused, they can be moved by organizations from one city to another. And what we see is that in the, the locations, the states and cities that um, are controlled most by uh, folks like Mariana and Brian and their side um, are the ones that are in the worst shape, the absolute worst shape. And why is that? It's maybe not because they created homelessness, but because 
they invite it, they subsidize this type of living, that people can live under bridges, do drugs, um, uh, steal for the money to buy the drugs, prostitute themselves, all because of the, the rancorous mix of mental illness and drug addiction. And, in, and then when there's a, a community, a state that might have a hard policy, it's like, hey, you need to get treatment or you need to go to jail. And then all of a sudden, the homeless tend to flee. And then we say, well, we cured it. You didn't cure it. They moved. They went to L.A. There's, there's homeless people under every single bridge in Seattle and Portland. The places where, again, the folks on the, the left wing, the socialist left wing, where my opponent and Mariana are, where they say, well, we just haven't thrown enough money at it. We just haven't uh, come up with a good enough program yet. You're not thinking of anything new that hasn't been thought of before about programs. You think that there's a shortage of beds. There's more beds than there are homeless people in Washington state. It's not a shortage of bed. It's not, it's not a shortage of uh, kindness and, and places to go. It's a shortage of discipline and direction. We're split on this and there's a chasm between us in which we can't reconcile ourselves. We need to, if we're going to even start with a cure for this, we need to start from a position of being uh, tough but having love. Time's up. Thank you, Joel. Uh, Brian, what uh, factors influence homelessness and what solutions could you offer? Yeah, so I, I mean, the obvious uh, uh, substance abuse and mental health issues, but uh, again, uh, back to one of the previous questions, we've got to go upstream and, and look at what's causing uh, people to make these choices. And I, I would, uh, uh, posit that it's uh, uh, trauma in their childhood, um, whether it's uh, uh, being beat by a parent or, or molestation by a step-parent um, or uh, rape. Or, um, and uh, these things are happening, and they affect people's lives and cause people to make bad decisions down, uh, downstream. Um, I'm a strong proponent of the housing trust fund and building public housing, and I'm a strong proponent of working uh, with our builders to reduce the cost of just building housing. I've sponsored bills to allow micro housing, and uh, interestingly enough, the, the biggest uh, uh, entity that fought that was the city of Seattle, and, uh, and uh, I'll keep fighting hard for uh, builders to have that freedom to build more housing and build cheaper housing but um the homelessness crisis it's uh we, we've got the crisis at hand and we've got the the crisis that we can go back and stop from happening in the future i probably wouldn't see the benefits of it i'm 60 years old but we've got to start now to reduce that childhood trauma and reduce these downstream problems so it's uh it's complicated but but folks say uh if we just get a move them along to la that our problem's gone away these are fellow human beings thank you brian uh joel 30 seconds yeah we definitely uh need to look closer at it and do more and come at it from a uh, position of uh, facts and science and relying on what works and what doesn't um i do think that childhood trauma is a definite part of that um, uh, and you know, the, w there are ways we can, we can, uh, talk about that and, and try and address it. Thanks, Joel. All right. Our next question, what have you done 
or what would you do to bring back the large commercial and sports fishing salmon run to our district? And what is taking so long? I know our family really misses those fresh salmon. So Jim, will you start? Sure, sure. Well, you know, uh, you know, you know, we're home when we get that question. Um, uh, Brian touched on this a little bit earlier, and and it, it, the the single biggest piece is hatch reproduction, in my opinion. And uh, our the production in our state-run fish hatcheries, um, primary for salmon, but also steelhead and and some other species, has been run down in the last few decades, and that's been part, unfortunately, of a uh, uh, a kind of agenda that a, a strange mix of stakeholders have pushed to uh, to reduce our production in our hatcheries, and and we got to get that back up. That's part of it is money to get the operating capital and operating funds back into the hatchery system so they can increase their operations. Part of it is true capital investment because some of the hard facilities have uh, have eroded during this downtime. So it's it needs money. It needs money, both capital money and, and operational money. Um, we also need to uh, to really unite, and, and this is a bipartisan issue. This is something that Brian and I and, and Dean Taco have worked on, and it's not partisan. We need to unite as representatives of this part of the state whose constituents are, are more directly interested in having a viable uh, commercial charter and, and sports fishery operating than kind of the weekend fishermen from other parts of the state. Now, we love the weekend fishermen to come down, but we should really be driving the agenda on this public policy question, not people who seconds. aren't as directly, literally, directly invested in a good outcome as we are. So uh, hatchery production up and, uh, uh, you know, our part of Washington leading the, the discussion on how to fund and operate the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Thanks, Jim. Um, Mariana, what would you do to bring back the salmon run? Yeah. Um, as soon as I got my driver's license, my older brothers had me um, helping them drop off the, the drift boat so they could float the river many miles down and uh, get get the boat out and drive it home. Uh, so I uh, definitely have had fishermen in my life my entire life, and I understand, and miss it myself. Uh, what we need to do is um, we can create a lot of jobs by uh, doing the things that we need to do to restore our, our natural resources. We can uh, invest in in all the capital things that we need to do to build the culverts and uh, restore the um, <clears throat> restore the runs for our salmon, but uh, we can also do um, a civilian uh, conservation corps and make lots of jobs for our young people. Uh, they can uh, work really hard to um, make sure that we preserve those natural resources on into the future because we all know that you know here we are very connected to the land and the water and uh, what we need to do is restore that uh, so we have those natural resources way on into the future. Thanks Mariana. Jim, you have 30 seconds for a rebuttal. Well, less a rebuttal because there's nothing there to rebut, but uh, <laughs> some added thoughts. Um, uh, we don't, you know, a lot of the best work that we've done for generations has been 
like in just individuals, private fishermen and groups of fishermen. And uh, one of the great things that we've always had around the Willapa system are, are egg boxes, just private kind of low tech fish boxes that raise small fish uh, in the creek systems that come down into the Willapa. And uh, those had a kind of, uh, they kind of helped them a little bit, but not directly. And uh, it needs to get back in the business of helping those private operations. All right, thanks, Jim. Um, Brian, will you go ahead and answer that question? What are your thoughts on bringing back the large commercial fish runs and the sport fishermen? Um, we're looking for some salmon around here. Yeah, absolutely. You saw a few years ago, Congress uh, um, cut salmon production, Mitchell Act production below Bonneville Dam. Um, I've been working with uh, uh, our congressional delegation, uh, Jamie Herrera Butler, uh, the, our senators, and, and uh, to restore that salmon production below Bonneville. Um, I've fought, we are in phase one construction at the nacelle hatchery. Uh, this next session, I plan to fight for the phase two money at nacelle. Um, we have lost the Al Alokaman hatchery, but uh, have made investments in the Beaver Creek hatchery there on the Alokaman system. I, I think more investment at Alokaman so we can increase production there is important. I think that uh, the three Willapa hatcheries are, uh, are critical. I think all three of those Willapa hatcheries should be run full throttle and, and uh, increase production there. The previous commission cut hatchery production by 30%. I was re able to restore about 3 million Chinook to the nacelle system uh, several years ago. Uh, and I think that, uh, as Jim said, uh, keeping volunteers engaged in uh, these egg boxes are a wonderful way to restore uh, fish runs to small streams. And uh, there, there is a, a definite group of folks out there are, that are working to throttle down production I've got them on the run and uh, uh, building a coalition between tribes across the state, commercial fishermen and sports fishermen. And uh, we're starting to get traction. The Fish and Wildlife Commission is starting to get it and we are going to get our fishing back. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Joel, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, we live in such a great place, um, such a such a gem, so many natural resources and opportunities that we have, and it, they need to be protected and cherished, fish being one of them. Um, but it's interesting, Jim says, you know, we've seen a decrease in production over the last 20 years. My opponent has been in office about 20 years. Very convenient. Um, that he said at the end of his statement that now he's there the people who are trying to throttle down um, production of fish he's finally got him cornered he's got him now if we vote for Brian Blake this one last time fish those fish are coming back and that's something we hear from politicians every two years when they come back to us with uh, with with failure in their wake and then they say but if you I'm this close I I'm just getting the tribes I'm getting everyone together if you just send me back. This one last, I've got so many good ideas, I, I'm going to be able to really produce for you. Just give me, give me one shot. We've had plenty of shots. You've had plenty of shots. And I think that what we need is we need someone who has more energy, more dedication and devotion to getting things done. Uh, failure to me is a, is a kick in the gut. I hate it. I can't go back empty-handed, tail between my legs. It's, a, it's shameful. And so if I say I'm going to work on the fish issue, 
I'm going to bring something back that the people are going to be able to see that's tangible. Should I be elected to this spot? Thank you, Joel. Um, Brian, do you have, you have 30 more seconds if needed. Absolutely. So, you know, I haven't been standing still while I've been in office. I brought the first significant investment in our hatchery system in, in years. I think it was 42 million into capital investment into our hatcheries to, uh, to bring them up to snuff and, and make them ready for increased production. This, is, this arena is a difficult one to work in. Uh, in many of our hatcheries, we have co-management agreements, and so you have to get agreement with the tribes and others, and it's a difficult arena. Thank you. Okay, thank you. All right, our next question. What do you think are important issues facing our LGBTQ constituents for this election related to health insurance, marriage, and family issues, transgender youth, etc. What is your position on these issues? Uh, Joel, will you start for us on this question? Yeah, I think uh, beyond any of those things, just health and safety is is paramount. Um, we know right now it's not a it's not a stereotype. It's a fact that the the uh, HIV virus um, is transmitted. Um, uh, more prevalently in the homosexual community than it is in the straight community. Um, in this last session, my, my opponent uh, voted to decrease the criminal penalties for those who knowingly transmit HIV from one person to another. So someone can have HIV, knowingly transmit it to someone else. And, uh, and ironically, this was voted on by my opponent right before the, uh, the COVID pandemic hit. So um, where before it was a felony to be able to give someone a virus, which is going to very likely lead to their death. And, um, and now it's the same as, uh, you know, public intoxication or disorderly conduct. It's just a little thing. And so there are actions being taken by, by uh, representatives that put the health and safety of the LGBTQ community at, at risk and in peril. And not just that community, all everybody. And so I, uh, I, I think that uh, we need to be thinking very hard about uh, about these votes we take to be able to uh, see to the well-being and protection of uh, of all people. Thanks, Joel. Brian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and to to respond to my opponent, the. Uh... Uh, you know, that was a law that was put in place to enhance penalties uh, back when HIV was a death sentence. And uh, since then, the treatment has become very good. And uh, so this law was just to uh, harmonize the penalties for knowingly transmitting an STD to a partner um, with other uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and those other diseases. And so uh, if my opponent wants to uh, raise those others to a felony, I, I'm sure uh, uh, folks might want to introduce a bill to do that. But this was uh, a bill to just harmonize that. Our folks, uh, LGBTQ folks, uh, you know, are have really been uh, demonized in, in our community for far too long. And, and it's just sad to hear my opponent speak like that. These are, these are good folks. Uh, the heart chooses who we love. And 
we can do better. Joel, you have 30 seconds for a rebuttal. Yeah, I never said that these weren't good people. Um, that's to, to say that, well, the, you're somehow distraught at what your opponent, me, has said. Um, I'm, I'm disagreeing with your, uh, your policy choices that had an effect on this community. I'm, I, I didn't say anything about having any disrespect or hate towards this group at all. It's, that's incorrect. Okay, thank you, Joel. Um, I'm going to repeat the question one more time, and then, Mariana, you will start. Um, what do you think are the most important issues facing our LGBTQ community uh, for this election related to health insurance, marriage and family issues, transgender youth, etc.? What is your position on these issues? Yes, uh, every community of people deserves to have dignity and respect in, in every way. Um, there are protections that uh, LGBTQ uh, people do not uh, have in especially other parts of the state. Uh, we do have a little bit extra uh, protections for them in Washington, except for um, not everybody that's LGBT has health insurance. So they can't afford to have the treatments that they deserve to uh, retain their, their physical and mental health. Uh, not every LGBTQ person has been supported in their right to be married to who they love or to adopt children um, or have children. Uh, we have too much discrimination. Uh, what this is is uh, part of that divide and conquer strategy that too many people use to keep us fighting amongst ourselves so we're not paying attention uh, to how we're being fleeced by uh, giant multinational corporations and the wealthy. And so um, I support every uh, person to live the life uh, that they choose um, with dignity and respect, uh, regardless of their sexuality, their gender, uh, or uh, the color of their skin. Thanks, Mariana. Um, Jim, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, dignity and respect are laudable goals and something you, every person should show and, uh, to another person. You can't really legislate dignity and respect. Uh, what you can legislate is fair treatment and equal protection under the law. And our state has been on the forefront of offering people in the LBGT community those protections. And nothing that we've considered in recent public policy talks uh, would do anything to undermine those protections. Um, I guess what I would offer that community is uh, a continued fair shake under Washington state laws. And, uh, and maybe this, uh, I'm concerned about the state's recent actions, and particularly the governor's recent actions under his emergency proclamations, and the effects that those actions have on individuals' rights to privacy. And I think there is a, a nexus, there is a joining point in the interests of the LBGT community and privacy. And I think if, you know, if I can do anything in particular to offer that community to help uh, them members live a quality life, is to watch out for that right to privacy. 
And not every person wants every element of their life made public. Uh, they may want certain elements of their life to remain private. And uh, I'm concerned about some of the approaches we take under the color of public health or public safety eroding privacy rights. And so I'll be watchful uh, in the coming sessions to protect every Washingtonian's privacy, and including uh, members of the LGBT community. Thank you, Jim. Um, Mariana, you have 30 seconds. So um, not until yet, I do not have a record, but Jim does have a record. And his record shows that he voted against banning conversion therapy in minors. And so I can't see how he can have anything to say that he has any respect for the LGBTQ community. Time's up. Okay. Um, we're going to move to our next question. Um, what is, this is a two-part question. What role do legislators have in keeping protest movements peaceful? Do you think dis destruction of campaign signs is a gateway to non-peaceful protests? And it looks like it is Brian's turn to start. Can you clarify that question for me? Yeah, so um, basically, um, what is your role in um, keeping protest movements peaceful? And then one of the recent um, things that has been happening here is a lot of protest signs have been stolen or destroyed. Is that a gateway to non-peaceful protest? Well, I, I am a strong proponent of uh, uh, our constitutional liberty to uh, to protest. I've, I've participated in myself, um, but I will tell you that I'm uh, uh, strongly opposed to uh, the use of violence and threats and property destruction to make points. And I'm a strong proponent of uh, law enforcement, the appropriate jurisdiction. Uh, cities should police cities and counties should police counties um, uh, to uh, arrest and prosecute people that are uh, committing violent acts and destroying property. Uh, when it comes to uh, stealing campaign signs, I, I think that uh, that's also a crime. Um, and uh, here locally, we've uh, been successful at times. Uh, a friend uh, put up uh, uh, game cameras and caught uh, a, uh, a, a sign violator. And so, I think surveillance uh, in that case is, is a good way to catch these people who are committing these crimes, and I strongly support that. Thanks, Brian. Um, Joel, your thoughts? You know, as leaders of the community, we are held to a high standard um, on what we do. Um, it's, it's not okay to incite violence to say, hey, let's go down to the street and throw bricks through a building. And then when other people do it and you say, I, w I didn't make them do it. I but you're, you're uh, as a leader in the community, a legislator um, gathering people to do that, see that, that that's, that's, that's wrong to be in that position. Um, stealing signs, I don't feel it as egregious as what I've seen on the television where I've seen uh, cop cars flipped over, caught on fire. Molotov cocktails thrown at federal buildings, bricks thrown at police officers' heads. 
um, people getting shot and killed um, on both sides. I, um, I, I think the signs are uh, a step below that. Are they a gateway? I don't, uh, I don't know that anyone who's stolen a sign two years ago is now out shooting people. Um, but I can say my signs have been absolutely trashed and I'm just, I'm actually okay with it because what it shows is it shows a bankrupt nature of the sign stealers. When someone steals a sign, what it is, is that it is an, it is an admission that you have no uh, voice, that you have no idea that's good enough to bring to the public platform and stage to, uh, to be able to, uh, argue with. You are so bankrupt of ideas that you have to go out and grab signs in the dark of night like a rat and rip them out and then go throw them in a ditch. I am constantly driving around the community and picking up my signs found in ditches and restaking them in. And I do it with joy because I, I have more love for this community than the people who rip out signs. I don't think my opponent uh, 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 wants people to rip out signs. I know I don't want people to rip out signs. I've never touched one of my opponent's signs. I know he hasn't touched one of mine. I don't think that, I think people on both sides have done this, but we both, uh, we both denounce it. And I, I like to see that Brian's signs are getting left alone and mine are just getting absolutely trapped <laughs> because it means we're making an impact. Um, if I wasn't doing well in this race, there'd be no reason to touch my signs. Why would you, if I was getting trashed, but uh, oh we're doing great and my signs are suffering the consequences. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Joel. Uh, Brian, you have 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, specifically on the signs, I mean, I've, I've had signs slashed in the past and, and, and missing, and, and I even had a, a friend call and say that uh, uh, my signs were piled up in a previous opponent, not my current opponent's uh, mother's backyard, and he asked, what are you going to do? Are you going to call the police? Are you going to call the newspaper? I said, absolutely not. I'm going to put up more signs. Um, and... Uh, um, it, uh, you know, I, I know I've, I've, uh, I've seen Jim put up my signs and I, I've put up his signs. And, uh, you know, when I see him knocked down, it's, uh, it's just common courtesy. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Um, Jim, it's your turn to start um, for that same question. Sure. I, I guess I'll, uh, I'll start with the sign part. I, I, no, I, I don't think it's a gateway to, to more serious violence. I, there is some... You know, there's some petty stuff that goes on with signs, and uh, and uh, especially up here in Grays Harbor, as Brian alluded to, there was a notorious case of one individual who was who was stealing other people's signs, and uh, and we did. Uh, he was prosecuted, uh, and and that kind of put a damper on the the worst effects there. And um, I think we've all had our signs slashed. I think. We all, in some manner, sort of proudly stitch them back together and put them back out. So, uh, um, uh, but but to the more serious part of the question about about the violence, I think we do need all of us as legislators and, and candidates of the legislature need to say clearly that while the First Amendment right to protest is essential, there is a bright line between protected political speech and a protest and 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 violence, physical violence on other people and destruction of property. And there, that, that is not a joking matter. When, when, when these people cross that line from, from a righteous protest to an unrighteous, you know, the throwing frozen water bottles at cops and lighting cop cars on fire and smashing the windows at Starbucks, that's a big difference and a substantive difference. And I feel we haven't done enough to prosecute the, the rioters, 
the ones who turn violent against person or property. And we do need to do a better job of, of, of prosecuting that when it happens and not just a revolving door thing where they, they, they're booked and they're released immediately on recognizance and they're out there doing it again the next night. Um, I think we need to take that kind of activity more seriously and we need to prosecute it more seriously. And, and uh, frankly, I don't think that's a problem in our area in the 19th, but I think it is a problem in some of our Thanks, Jim. Um, Mariana, what are your thoughts? Well, on June 14th of this year, I um, was with a group of my friends. Uh, we were uh, holding signs supporting Black lives in the city of Aberdeen. And we were surrounded by hundreds of men and women uh, open carrying, which is their right. I don't have a problem with that. The problem that I had was that these people uh, thought that it was okay to tell us they were gonna put a bullet in me because I support black lives. Other workers are not my enemy. And I feel very, I was very scared that day. And, uh, but now I'm just sad that these people have been fooled into thinking that other workers um, are their enemy because we are not enemies. So uh, I will continue to work every day to bring people together. And if you watch the footage of that video on my Facebook page, you'll see that all I was doing was talking to people and saying, hey, you know me, we're friends. We, we, are, we aren't different and uh, making connections with people, even in my fear right after a man just said he was going to put a bullet in me because uh, some uh, right wing, I guess, uh, groups had, had spread the rumor across the state that Antifa was coming to Aberdeen to burn down the police station. But we were not, we, I grew up here. I, I'm not, a, I'm not here to, to uh, burn down a police station. I'm here to support people who need support. 15 seconds. So we need, divide and conquer bullshit and uh, come together and make sure that every person has uh, uh, the dignity and respect that they need to live a, a good and thriving Fine life. Up. Thanks, Mariana. Um, Jim, 30 seconds. I don't think this is a right-wing, left-wing issue. And, and Mariana, I know some liberal shop owners in Aberdeen who are very upset with you standing in front of their shops screaming obscenities. Now, that may have been your First Amendment right to protest, but that was not the behavior that someone who's trying to unite people in our community would exhibit. Uh, you shouldn't have done that. Just as you shouldn't have protested screaming obscenities in front of my home, um, I could have had you arrested for doing that. The Aberdeen Police Department offered to do it, but I declined because I thought, as misguided as you are, you were trying to exercise your first right to protest. Okay, our next question. Um, another, it's another two-part question. Assuming an effective vaccine becomes available uh, before the start of the next school year, so September 2021, should schools return in full-time on-campus education, even though some students may not have been vaccinated by that time? What bill would you write to support your stated position? 
Um, for this set of questions, we're going to start with um, Mariana. Cool. Start with the uh, with the nurse. Okay, I like it. So um, our kids deserve to have a, a good, excellent education, and uh, the best way they learn is when they're in in groups and in and together and learning together, so that they. Um, can get that symbiosis, like everybody working together. And that's the goal. That is the goal. Get kids back together learning and being social. Um, if the vaccine is effective and so, uh, it's above, more uh, people have taken the vaccine than have not. And we the science bears out. Uh, yes, I will support a bill to keep kids um, in school. Um, and keep uh, them safe and learning and uh, free to, you know, do all the things that kids need to do to, to become good, righteous uh, adults. Thanks, Mariana. Jim, what are your thoughts on a vaccine and starting school? Well, I, I think kids should get back to school as soon as possible, regardless of whether the vaccine is in whatever stage of development. Um, we all want to see a, a vaccine for COVID uh, uh, developed as quickly as possible. But, but remember, uh, antiviral vaccines are not 100% effective always, and, and uh, viruses are, are tough nuts. I mean, they, they, uh, they uh, shift and change, and even in their DNA structure, across the arc of their, uh, you know, viral lives. So we need to be careful about putting too much hope in a, a so-called silver bullet vaccine. Uh, but to the point of the of kids getting back to school, I think they do need to get back to school um, uh, as soon as possible. And uh, and uh, I'm, you know, I don't know if there's a bill exactly that would, would foster that. Um, but, but if there is, I would, you know, sponsor a bill that would, would assure uh, school districts that autonomy so that so that no state bureaucracy can tell a school district it can't get kids back in the classroom um we need kids back in the classroom it, the the online learning cuts against underprivileged kids cuts against iep and special needs kids we need to get kids back in the school and and i guess implicit in the question is would i require the vaccine and, and no i would not require the vaccine i, I think that's a decision that needs to be left up to each family and the parents or guardians of each kid about whether uh, the kid would uh, receive the vaccine against COVID. Thanks, Jim. Um, Mariana, you have 30 seconds. I definitely uh, want to reiterate that um, we have to follow the science. We have to listen to the doctors and epidemiologists and all the experts in this field, uh, which is exactly what we have been doing in the state of Washington this entire time. So uh, we need to continue to do that and uh, make sure that we have uh, the best safety uh, that we can have because it's not over. This isn't over. Thank you. Um, our, um, we're going to move across over here to Joel. Um, Joel, what are, what are your thoughts on returning to school um, with the vaccine um, when not all students will probably have been vaccinated? What bill would you write to support your position? Uh, well, viruses are, have always been here, and I don't 
I don't think really they're going away anytime soon. We've seen uh, a virus in smallpox be eradicated. That was a pretty rare, rare thing. But mainly we have viruses uh, that are transmuted throughout the human population. And we, we have had schools open the whole time. And now that we have a new one that has a 99% survival rate, uh, we lose our marbles and uh, want to shut down everything uh, to stop it. Uh, we know that we're not going to have every kid vaccinated. And that's what Jim got to the crux of the question was about force. Are you going to force through legislation that everyone who attends this school needs to be vaccinated lest the school doesn't open or they can't come? You know, and that's not how we can run it. That's not how we should run it. That's not how we've been running it to this point. Uh, we, we, we encourage uh, the, uh, the acceptance of safe vaccines uh, because it's a smart way to, uh, to stop the transmission of viruses. And this one is, is no different. But uh, if it's either going to be a we close schools or open them, then I'm going to err on the side of opening them and allowing free individuals, parents, to be able to choose what's best for their kids. Understanding that viral particles are out there in, in the environment and that when we live lives as free citizens, we take risks. Everything we do has a risk. And one of the risks of being in school, I know because I was a teacher, I've never been more sick in my life than when I was a middle school teacher in a room that did not have proper ventilation, you know, AC or heat in the room number 10 of the great um, and and so well, you understand these risks and, and you understand that there are risks and rewards. And I'm, and I'm saying that whether through legislation or not, the schools should open and parents should be able to choose to, kids to partake. Thanks, Joel. Brian, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm a strong proponent of uh, getting our kids back in school. I think uh, Jim alluded to it. Uh, um, you know, the, uh, we haven't talked about broadband, but not every family out there has access to broadband. And, uh, and I think uh, kids learn better in that uh, classroom environment. And in regards to the uh, vaccine, I'm a strong proponent of vaccines. I've, I've been vaccinated myself. I'm going to get the, the flu vaccine here probably soon, but I am also very strongly opposed to uh, uh, forcing uh, parents and students to be vaccinated. Um, I, I've actually voted on that issue in the legislature and it's just something I strongly feel uh, that uh, that should be the parent's choice and, uh, and that's where I'm at. So thank you. Thanks, Brian. Um, Joel, you have 30 seconds. Um, no rebuttal. I just want to say I love America. <laughs> Thanks. Somehow you got muted, Stephanie. Thanks, Joel. I did the opposite. Sorry about that. Um, or all of you that were helping me. Um, so one aspect of leadership is leading by example. Um, do you personally wear a face mask for COVID-19 protection whenever you are out in public? and near other people? And do you encourage people of our district to do the same? Why or why not? And this time it is um, Jim's turn to start. Well, I, uh, I wear a mask when I go into uh, 
stores or, or spaces that uh, where the proprietors ask me to wear a mask, and it's out of respect for their request and, and their desires. Um, I generally do not wear a mask out in the open in public. I don't wear one at home. I don't wear one while I'm driving my car. Um, I, uh, I am concerned about the effectiveness of cloth masks to prevent a virus, which we now know travels in an aerosol form. Uh, and I think there is a certain amount of, uh, uh, you know, virtue signaling and theater that goes on in wearing the masks. But if, uh, if, uh, if the proprietor of a store asks me to wear it, I will wear it. And if a uh, family I'm visiting asks me to wear it, I will wear it. Um, when I've been doorbelling around the 19th, which we've been doing consistently throughout, we took a small break in the early stages of the outbreak. Um, uh, most people don't ask me to put a mask on. I, my own preference is I wear a bandana around my neck and uh, we'll pull it up if someone asks me to cover. And uh, very few people have asked me to cover. And when they do, I do. And we, we talk at their doorstep. Um, so I, I think it's a matter of more of respect and deference to the proprietor of the store or the homeowner than it is to anything else. I think, uh, I think uh, we all need to make those decisions for ourselves. I guess I'm lucky in that I'm not in a high risk category and my, my immediate family is not. So, uh, so we can, uh, we can use our discretion and, uh, and how we wear the mask. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Mariana, what are your thoughts? Um, I go every, go to work every day as a nurse and I wear a mask for 12 and a half hours. And, uh, uh, everywhere I go outside of th that's in the public, I, I wear a mask every single time. Uh, it's about, uh, for me, it's about having respect and caring about other people, keeping my droplets off of surfaces and out of the air that other people are breathing, at least as much as can possibly be done um, within uh, reason. Um, <laughs> sorry, my little voice running around. Um, Jim does, doesn't wear a mask uh, consistently. He just said that. And at the rallies that he holds, he uh, encourages others to not do that. And it really, it really makes me mad. It really, really makes me mad because I work so hard every day to keep people safe and alive. And there's somebody running around encouraging others to, to not do that. Uh, we're all struggling, uh, small businesses, families, we're all struggling. And the, the way that we can get out of this is part of it is by consistently wearing a mask anytime you're, you're anywhere near another person. So all it does is prolong the agony, pro keeps people down, keeps small businesses not functioning, keeps kids out of school, keeps my mom isolated in her home because she does have pre-existing conditions by not taking all the safety precautions that we can. So that's where we're at. Okay, thank you. Jim, you have 30 seconds if you'd like. Mariana, again, is wrong, of course. Uh, there is no uh, consensus among the CDC, the WHO, about any of the things she said. Um, Mariana, as usual, leads with emotion, not with reason. And uh, 
that's the way she chooses to live, that's her choice, and that's fine. But it's a choice that every person should have. Um, how um, to wear a mask or not wear a mask, how to respond to the South as suits their own circumstances. Okay, Brian, it's your, um, your turn. Uh, the question once again is one aspect of leadership is leading by example. Do you personally wear a face mask for COVID-19 protection whenever you are out in public and near other people? And do you encourage the people of District 19 to do the same? Why or why not? Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, I do my best. I have uh, several masks in the, in the car and in the truck. And, uh, uh, you know, I've caught myself several times uh, having to turn around at the store uh, front, uh, realizing I forgot my mask. I'll go back to the car and get it because I do think it's important that, uh, you know, early on um, uh, at the grocery store, um, you know, I could tell there was frustration from the clerk there that was uh, checking me out. That it, he had some underlying health issues, and he was terrified. And and I think uh, it's important that we uh, uh, respect those other people. We don't know everybody else's situation, and uh, and uh, there's a tendency to be a little cocky. And and uh, uh, but yeah, I do the best I can to wear a mask. Um, uh, when I'm out in public, and uh, and uh, my elk hunting partner just got me a really nice uh, laborers union scarf. So, like Jim, I, I've got that bandana uh, tied around the back of my head, and that I can slip up over my nose and mouth. Thanks, Brian. Um, okay, Joel, will you please respond to the question? Yeah, I do not, uh, I don't point the finger of shame at anyone who chooses to wear a mask. Um, you can wear a mask every single day for the rest of your life and it uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, bother me in the slightest. I believe that people should be able to uh, pick and choose their own risks and, and rewards of how they live their life. Be Look, I don't cough in people's faces. I don't sneeze on my hand and then shake someone's hand. I have common courtesy and decency within our, our regular way of, of uh, um, socialization in the Western society on how we do, how we do things. Um, I will not cede my, my, uh, my reasoning skills to, uh, to the, other, the other side that says, well, we're wearing a mask, you have to as well. I'll have you know that the World Health Organization and the CDC during the bird flu, during SARS, during the pertussis outbreak, during H1N1 always said if we uh, socially distance and wear masks, we could, uh, we could diminish the risks. So I ask uh, Brian Blake and Comrade Everson, do you guys wear masks when H1N1 was going around? Did you wear them when bird flu was happening? Did, or was it only when uh, Jay Inslee told you you had to? When did you decide that this one was bad enough? Do you know that thousands, tens of thousands of people annually die from the flu? and that social distancing and that wearing a mask would stop. Do their lives not matter? So why did you never wear a mask before, but now all of a sudden you must mask up. We all must mask up. We're in this together. Uh, so what made the big switch, except for the fact that Donald Trump was the president and the, and the pitch on the other side was we have to cause as much distress as possible during this, this virus than ever before, even though this virus and its, uh, and its death rate doesn't compare to the pandemics we've seen in the past, not even close. It's not even a blip on the radar. The CDC was saying if we botched this up, we'd have 3 million dead Americans. 
And if you want to use that as a marker, well, we've done fantastic. We're nowhere even close to that, not even close. And so I don't shame people. I have a mask. I wear it because I seek no disturbance. Okay, the, businesses, the businesses that I go in and patron, I don't seek any disturbance with them. I don't want them to get in any trouble. I wear the mask. I go buy a headlight because I'm there to do the business and get out. Um, but to make uh, statements like I'm wearing a mask, so I care. It's not, it's silly. Okay. Uh, Brian, you have third, you have 30 seconds. There we go. Yeah. The, for me, you know, it was a real moment when I, I, uh, uh, heard the comments from that, uh, grocery checker who was truly scared. He was there at work and, uh, that drove it home for me. Uh, it wasn't about my health. It was about other people in my community and uh, my neighbors. And uh, um, I'm, I'm not a health expert, um, but uh, I'm going to wear that mask um, just for others' peace of mind. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, it looks like we have time for one more question before closing. Uh, the last question um, is, what aspects of law enforcement, if any, would you consider changing? How would you pay for increased costs and what would you do with excess funds? The Joel, will you please start with that question? Yeah, um, I'd definitely be willing to uh, to sit down and uh, with law enforcement and other agencies and discuss uh, proposals. I'd love to hear proposals, but we don't get proposals um, in this debate. Uh, this this police um, debate that we've had about uh, um, police violence has been one pushed by emotion. Um, it's been one where um, the facts don't matter. The fact that uh, a white cop and there was a black victim, so therefore it's headline news and something has to be done about it. Um, bring something to the table. If you think uh, the tasers are the voltage on the tasers is too high, maybe we bring it down. If you want an extra month of the academy training to deal with sensitivity and mental health issues, I'm open to it. It's it's okay. I, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. But when we hear outrageous stuff from the the left, my my opponent's side of the aisle, we got to defund the police, defund the police, abolish the police, and then our leadership is so weak that they allow. Um, they allow Antifa terrorists to set up several blocks and uh, in Seattle, push everybody out and say well, they're an autonomous country and, uh, and they're gonna have a socialist utopia right there in the uh, downtown heart of Seattle. There's, there are so many things that we need to work on. Uh, and if anything, it's, we need to have a, a, a stronger hold on, uh, on our, our leaders. Our leaders need to have a stronger hold and, and be tougher on these uh, domestic terrorists that, that commit these crimes in broad daylight. That's not, the police didn't do anything wrong. They were ordered to, to move out and then the, the destruction happened. So uh, yeah, it's super complicated. Not, there, there are police officers who make bad choices. Um, always have and always will. But uh, I'm not hearing any proposals brought up. All I'm hearing is slander and hate and, and defund the police as a platitude, and it doesn't get us anywhere. Thanks, Joel. Brian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the, the, uh, there's proposals out there. There's proposals by the uh, Police Chiefs and Sheriffs Association, and, uh, and uh, I'm very open to what they're talking about. I think it's important uh, 
Washington has been a leader in police reform. Uh, we had the uh, uh, the initiative uh, a couple years ago, and uh, uh, and we're able to de develop a uh, a uh, proposal in the, in the legislature, which we passed, and then the courts threw out. But to their credit, uh, both sides honored that agreement, and we were able to pass that bill to get it signed into law. That said, um, I'm not a law enforcement professional, and I want to hear their proposals and, and debate their proposals. And, and I think, they, again, as I said, these are leaders in this state, in this nation, and um, we have a strong police academy system, so we get consistent training across the state. Can we improve that? Uh, uh, as my opponent says, add uh, uh, another week to the, the training, and uh, I'm open to that. I think uh, those folks that are talking about defunding the police, uh, I don't support that. I, I think... Uh, uh, I'm proud of the police departments across this state, and especially the ones in the 19th district. We have true leaders uh, there, and uh, uh, I, I got get the sense that when we go into session, I will be pushing back pretty hard on some proposals. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Joel, 30 seconds. I was at a Back the Blue rally a couple weeks ago, and uh, we had a great time waving flags and letting police officers know everywhere that we stand with them and we respect them. Um, my my opponent isn't maybe chanting fund the police, but the Seattle liberals who fund his campaign are, and so he's got some problems. Okay, um, Mariana. Um, it's your turn to start that question. Again, the question was, uh, what aspects of law enforcement, if any, would you consider changing? How would you pay for those increased costs? Or what would you do with excess funds? Thank you very much. Um, I'm listening to the, the members of, of my community who um, are screaming at the top of their lungs uh, and trying to to come to understand as much as I can uh, where they're coming from. So eight uh, policies that could be used are um, banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring de-escalation, require warning before shooting requires exhaust of all alternatives before shooting, duty to intervene, banning shooting at moving vehicles, require use of force continuum, and require comprehensive reporting. They have policies. They're easy to find. Um, we, we just need to continue to listen to our community, uh, people who have been disproportionately affected by pre police brutality um, have a voice the same as everyone else and I support them to um, continue to find ways to reduce the, their deaths and uh, make it more fair for everyone. Definitely uh, would use uh, funds that could be saved uh, by um, increasing mental health counselors, social workers, 
people that can help people actually get out of poverty so they're not committing crimes in the first place. Thank you. Um, Jim, what are your thoughts on this question? Well, I, I talk to people uh, in the 19th district uh, all the time about law enforcement, including the five sheriffs of the five counties in the 19th and the, the chiefs of police and the, the city police forces in our district. And whatever the notes, Mariana, were just reading, uh, whatever that's from, that's not from around here. Um, uh, the best thing we can do to help fund our local law enforcement is put state dollars back in to the rural drug task force that exists in statute, but has been stripped of the funding that it had uh, uh, for several years and ended about three or four years ago. Well, maybe a little longer, maybe it's five years ago now. Um, we need to get those dollars back into that program, which, go directly to our, our county uh, sheriff's departments, especially. Um, the amount of money there has never been a great amount of money in terms of the state budget, somewhere in the 10 to $20 million a year range. Uh, it could be higher. It could be $30 million a year. And that money is what they call budget dust. I mean, basically it's a rounding error on some of the misbegotten programs that we're funding uh, for uh, uh, various uh, studies and, and community outreach efforts uh, that burn through millions of dollars every biennium. Um, so that's what, uh, th we need to refund that rural drug task force program. It, it doesn't need to be changed in the statute, it's still there, it just doesn't have any money. And that would be, when I talk to the sheriffs, you know, uh, Scott and Grays Harbor, Thurman and Cowlitz, Souvenir and Pacific, Dowdy and Wakayakum, and of course, Snazza and Lewis, they say that's the thing that they would like and need most to uh, improve their effectiveness here in our part of the world. Thanks, Jim. Um, Mariana, you have 30 seconds. Uh, sure. So uh, when you only listen to one side of the equation, you only see one side of the problem. So if Jim is only talking to police officers, uh, and they're telling them what they need to punish people more, uh, then, then that's what he's going to know about. But what I know about is that there's people who are hurting, they are in poverty, they need uh, to be brought out of that situation so they have no reason uh, to be uh, contacted by the police, and the police need uh, policing everyone the same way that they, they do white people. Okay, thank you. That brings us to the end of our debate. And we have one last question for each of you before we sign off. Please take two minutes and summarize what you want our audience to know about you and your position on issues. Um, and I'd like uh, Joel to start. All right. Um... Thank you everybody for uh, putting on this, uh, this event tonight. It's been lovely. Um, I'm Joel McIntyre, um, running for uh, state representative position two here in Southwest Washington. Um, uh, in the primary, we did very well and we won over 53% of the vote um, in, uh, in that primary. And we did, we did very, very well and it's, it's looking good. The, uh, 
the ballots aren't necessarily coming. They're here. People have already voted in our district. And so we have a real opportunity, a golden opportunity to make, be able to make real change, honest change in a different direction uh, in Southwest Washington uh, that we've never had before. And so I'm grateful for those who have supported our campaign. Um, we have knocked so many thousands of doors. We've called so many thousands of people uh, on our digital uh, phone book. Just incredible the amount of volunteers, the amount of help that the community has given to be able to make this change. Um, it's, uh, it is a campaign that is based uh, right here. I'm from here and I'm for here. Um, my opponent is heavily backed. 97% of his money comes from out of district. Um, that's who wants him to win. His campaign slogan is that he's not your average Democrat. I'm not sure if he's talking about Mariana or if he's talking about Dean Taco, but he says he's not your average, your typical Democrat. Um, and uh, But typical Democrats in Seattle are definitely desiring him back. They are putting up huge bucks to see him back in Olympia and begs the question why. I can tell you this, uh, when elected, I'll be fighting for the 19th district and the 19th di district only. Thank you. 15 seconds. Thanks, Joel. Um, Brian? What would you like our um, audience to know about you? Well, uh, thank you for the uh, opportunity tonight to, to speak to the public and uh, to answer questions. Um, I'm uh, the same Brian Blake that you uh, elected way back in 2003. I'm a, a country boy, a logger, a gun owner, hunter, fisherman. Um, uh, proud of my heritage in the logging industry, proud of my uh, family heritage in the cranberry industry and the milling industry. And, and uh, I've developed uh, over the years relationships with uh, um, uh, the folks that uh, have the knowledge and they've shared that knowledge with me. And I carry that wisdom and knowledge into that democratic caucus and uh, as we hammer out debate and uh, and uh, uh, what bills come to the floor, and uh, I can say that uh, uh, a lot of bills that uh, that folks wouldn't like in the 19th district, I've been able to stop. I haven't been able to stop everything, uh, but I also think on the other side of the equation. I've passed a lot of bills that help this district. I brought investment to the district. Um, you, I drive over the bridges uh, all the time. The Lily Wheaton Bridge, the uh, North River Bridge, the Smith Creek Bridge, the uh, uh, Bone River Bridge, the Middle Nema Bridge, the two Rock Creek Bridges, the South Fork of the Chehalis Bridge, the investment in the uh, uh, I-5-432 exchange, the IWOW, I think as Jim called it the other day, uh, Senator Tackle and I have secured $85 million for that project and we're going to build it. So uh, I'm proud to have represented you in the past. I'm here tonight asking you to rehire me. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Um, and position one, um, Mariana Everson, Everson, Mariana Everson, will you please respond? Yeah, um, I'm the right choice for this position uh, because I represent working people in Olympia, uh, no exceptions, no BS, you guys heard my flub. Um, I'm a proud member of this working class and I use a working class vernacular, obviously. 
Um, I've struggled as the people of this region have struggled. I've been homeless. I faced not being able to pay the rent. I had my electricity shut off because I couldn't afford it. I've, I've lived what people are living right now. Uh, what I understand is that it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to cater to wealthy corporations. We don't have to allow them to profit off of us. We can have universal health care that keeps us healthy instead of profiting off our sickness. We can demand every person have an adequate income with a good job security. And again, we can fully fund our education system from pre-K through college, trade school, or apprenticeship. And we can create good jobs protecting our air, water, and land. We can build enough affordable housing so uh, families can stay in homes. And we can sure, ensure that no one ever has to sleep on the sidewalk again. Uh, we can do these things and be responsible with our budget uh, and not fund it off the backs of the people of the working class. Uh, when Jim says he wants to cut taxes, what he means is he wants to cut the programs that working families rely on completely so corporations can profit off us even further. When I say I want to cut your taxes, I mean I want to make the wealthy pay their fair share so we don't have to struggle and die of treatable conditions. These guys heard my treatable conditions last night. Poverty is a treatable condition. Lack of educa education is a treatable condition. Lack of affordable clean housing is a seconds. treatable condition. Lack of health care is a treatable condition. So I'm Mariana Everson. I fight for working families and I'm asking for your vote. And in the meantime, let's stay healthy. Let's wear our masks and let's look out for each other. Thanks, Mariana. Um, Jim, will you uh, let us know or let the, the audience know um, your thoughts? Well, thanks, Steph, for being here and, and everybody for helping set this up on the rest. Uh, and uh, it's been, uh, it's always good to talk about policy. Um, you know, I love this job. I love being a representative of this district in Olympia, and I do a good job. I uh, am forceful, people here in that snake pit in Olympia. And, uh, and I think we've seen some good effects in the last four years. And uh, even though we are in trying times with this COVID and with the governor who's overreaching and uh, the shutdown and lockdowns and kids out of school, I, I really think things are getting better overall here. And I'm gonna keep helping make that happen. Help when we can do something to help get out of the way when we need to get out of the way and let people just do their thing. I've got a, uh, I've got a truck that's just a couple of years old, but it's got 90,000 miles on it. And the reason it's got 90,000 miles on it is I drive this district every day. And I talk to business owners every day, and I talk to parents and grandparents every day. I talk to fishermen. I talk to oyster farmers. I, I talk to to building trades, union members. I talked to longshoremen. Uh, I talked to everybody and I enjoy it. The people of this district are fantastic people and they deserve strong, aggressive representation in the state's capital. I've been doing that for four years. I'd like to keep doing it for two more years. I will always represent the people of this part of Washington 15 seconds. Long voice. And I'm happy to do it. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. That wraps up our debate for tonight. I would like to thank everyone for joining us this evening. We encourage you to also view the primary forum debate between these candidates 
as um, it was recorded on our YouTube channel. Thank you, especially to um, Jim Walsh, Mariana Everson, Joel McIntyre, and Brian Blake. We appreciate your willingness to give us your time this evening and to share your thoughts. Um, we'd also like to thank the Waukiacum County Democratic and Republican parties for hosting this debate. Our final debate of this cycle will be next week, Wednesday evening, with the four county commissioner candidates. The YouTube recording of this debate will remain online until the election is over. Be sure to check out the channel, Waukiacum R&D Team. Your mail-in ballots will be arriving soon and are due on November 3rd. So please vote and please encourage everyone you know to vote. Thanks again. We appreciate all four of you being here and good luck to each one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to tonight's Washington District 19 State Representatives Candidates Forum. We heard from District 1 incumbent Jim Walsh and challenger Mariana Everson, also from District 2 incumbent Brian Blake and challenger Joel McIntyre. The forum was produced by the bipartisan Wakayakum R&D team. The moderator was Stephanie Lights. The timekeeper was Phyllis Wesley, and the recording technician was Ron Wright.